Hello, friends. Welcome to another episode of the Wild User Interviews podcast. Today, I have with me the one, the only Matt Lockyer. You may know him from ETH Denver Organizer or Near Relations Developer or Satori or Proximity. He's literally everywhere on the YouTube, on the DJ decks. Welcome, Matt. Oh, thank you so much, AVB. Definitely, uh, yeah, I had a storied career in crypto starting in 2017 and in ETH and then Near for a couple of years and then some spinouts from Near. But I'm sure we're probably going to get into all of that. I figured that would be one of the best or the worst introduction you've ever had. <laughs> it's all good. It's all good. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was just keep the energy up and just drop all sorts of names and projects and things. I'm sure I've been involved in something. <laughs> yeah. Well, the thing is, I am actually having a hard time because two minutes before you joined, I broke my glasses. <laughs> oh, no. I don't know. I, I'm so strong or I'm so anxious. I don't know. I was just like wiping them viciously and I literally just cracked them in half. So I'm like half blind at the moment. Like I can see your great hair loosely on the screen. But we're here and we're going to make this work. Awesome. Awesome. LFG, as the kids say. Let's fucking go. <laughs> yeah, but I'm really excited to have you on. I think like like all good wine and whiskey, this is an interview that keeps getting better over time. Uh, you were definitely shortlisted among the first guests I wanted to have on the podcast. And that is because I, despite having very little technical knowledge, I found a lot of extremely valuable content and information from your early day YouTube channels. I just kept telling people like, I cannot believe this is free. Like this man is out there coding away, breaking down the code, giving away basically ready to be deployed functional applications on the best L1. So yeah, thank you, sir. You are an inspiration. I think uh, what you're referring to is something that I started when I was doing uh, developer relations at Near called Live App Review. And it wasn't actually my first post at Near. I actually joined on the wallet team and worked on the multi-sig feature and contract. There's a contract that needs to be used for that, a multi-sig contract. And we added this two-factor feature to the Near wallet. And then I worked on staking in the Near wallet. So if you've done a staking on Near via the, the Near wallet, I was part of the front-end JavaScript that made that happen. And then I jumped into the developer relations team to really kick up the apps that were being developed on Near post mainnet. And that's when I saw a colleague of mine, Eugene the Dream. He was making a video series called Live Contract Review. And uh, he's very smart. He wrote uh, a lot of the Near Rust SDK and the virtual machine that runs natively on Near. And he had this live contract review and he was reviewing contracts. He's very deep into the weeds. And I thought, hey, why don't we just, I'm an app guy. I love to make apps. So why don't we just make front-end apps? And yes, of course, contracts. And we'll review the relationship between the contract and the app. So that's how that series came together. And uh, yeah, I think I looked at it the other day and I sent it to somebody. I think there's 40 videos. And there's probably, yeah, like some videos are really long, like an hour and stuff. And I think there's like probably about a good high 30s sort of hours of content there. So it's, yeah, it's quite a bit. <laughs> Look, high 30 hours of content is a, the equivalent of a very overpriced college degree. And it's all out there and it's free. I've, I've always noticed that 
there's a lot of people looking for alpha. They want to know the latest. They want to be in the know, but no, not many people actually dig below the surface. Like even to this day, I reckon that the near main YouTube channel and look, granted, there are some SEO issues there, but they share so much, such high quality information and it only gets a couple thousand views. And that's when you realize that you're both early and it feels almost like an insider. That's why every time that I share alphas, they're obviously not really alphas. The information is out there in public. The things that I do know that are meant to be kept private, I, I, I do honor those agreements. But such few people know it that, yeah, you, you feel a little bit special sharing it and, and you see their eyes bulging. Yeah, there's, there's, definitely, there's definitely a lot of stuff on near that... <laughs> Unfortunately, it doesn't actually make it out into the public. And I think that it's the near, the official near sort of marketing engine has to be very specific. It has to be very careful of what it promotes and which sort of projects, because a core protocol can't be seen as like a kingmaker. But that being said, they could, <laughs> they could cover the ecosystem a little more. But also in, in another sense, I know that people can't find docs and like basic stuff. So we really need to bubble up and surface the best content. It's one thing that I'm very thankful that people like you have been doing and all of the wonderful community people, guilds and all sorts of things that, that have been booted up and been happening on Nier. There's an incredible community now that's sprouting up and curating the best of the ecosystem. So I'm really happy to see that. It's, it's, it's definitely an evolution for a layer one. I was actually exploiting that this morning, like only a handful of hours ago during a marketing DAO council meeting. We, we meet weekly. One of the recent council members, Taylor, he is a professional marketer. He's got an agency up in Denmark. And he was saying that the standard by which some people operate it's not that high, at least not what he's used to working for, you know, corporate clients. And I was just trying to explain to him the history and evolution of marketing in crypto. And the reality is up until very recently, most marketing agencies were terrible because they just didn't know what they were talking about. So then we start to see the levers change towards the community. And you've got all these basement DJs that spend hundreds of hours reading documentation on the discords, just amplifying content and message. And they become basically the only marketing engine that some projects have. So it makes sense to reward them and also enable them to do more. And now I think they're meeting halfway through. We are bringing some more professional marketers to help elevate these people into just like better practices, but also make sure that the marketers know what they're talking about. We can cut this bit out if you want, but this reminds me, it's probably one of the best early memories that I have of year, the governance forum, the golden days. So we had a marketing lady back in the day and there was a lot of focus on the branding and do, do the meerkats go, do the meerkats come? And I felt like I had some thoughts, I had some feelings around all these marketing initiatives. And I like that you were one of the few people, especially within near, you had standing to say something because you were in the middle of the action. You were one of the few people that said, hey, all this shit is great, but what about you do like marketing on the actual product developments that we're having and the code? And th there were just so many things to share even back in the day that there, there was a bit of a disconnect between marketing and engineering. And I think that is a problem that it's not unique to Nier, but 
I, I remember reading your posts and liking it and being like, Matt, respect. Yeah, that post was pretty colorful. I do remember what you're talking about. And yeah, I had some, I had some kind of some blowback for that, but it, there were two thoughts actually in that post and I had some really strong language, but the two points that I was making, I think are pretty salient. One is the one that you covered, which is that there was so much development work being done and actually beautifully summarized by the core protocol team, by the, the sub teams working on the wallet and all sorts of other things. So this work was being summarized literally in bullet form, like uh, it's a, a content marketer's uh, you know dream to just give me the bullets and I'll spin a narrative around it. But nothing was being done. And I just was, I was like, rattling the gate and just saying like, we need action here. So that was the one thought that you mentioned. And then the other concept in that was that um, there was a big push to rebrand near, and this was for the listeners, this was uh, a year and a half ago or more. And there was a big push to rebrand. And I simply said, like, where is the data? Like, where is the data that says that this is a bad brand? And we had a couple of a couple of apps building on near at the time that mumbled and grumbled about these these meerkat meerkat characters but anecdotal evidence is not data and we didn't have we didn't have a ton of a ton of overwhelming data saying that we needed to change our logo and our image and button up this whole brand and ultimately i thought it was um i thought it was a cloak and dagger kind of thing like it was actually just an excuse to spin wheels and spend money and talk to marketing agencies. And I, I narrowly made it AVB, but I was vindicated actually in the end. And I was patted on the back for, for actually sniffing this out. And, and it was exactly what I just said. It was basically a veiled attempt to, to blow some cash and spin some wheels and sit back and have some fun and let agencies do the work. And yeah, it was, uh, it was found out and, and then the rest is history, but I probably shouldn't include some of that, but whatever, fuck it. Let's throw it in. I mean, we didn't say, we didn't name names. <laughs> no names. And if people are able to find the post in that flaming mess of the governance <laughs> form is they deserve to know the truth. Onwards and upwards. It's not like I had a bad attitude. Definitely apologize for that bad attitude, but the content was sound and it was found out later to be sound. So all good, you know? Yeah. Look, as long as we always take some learnings, I think, I, honestly, I don't remember the inflammatory language, the colorful languages, you name it. But I do remember, and my lesson was, pick your battles. You with me. <laughs> Just kidding. I probably jumped in after you and doubled down. Never. It never looks harsh and, and blunt when somebody's in your echo chamber and they're just reaffirming your beliefs. <laughs> oh God, I think I've got some probably in my hands. Look, I pick your battles, stand your ground and be respectful. I'm, I've done the first two remarkably well. I think I can probably be more diplomatic in the way that I convey myself. But for the record, I live in Australia. We are all over the world. Like sometimes, you know, I like talking to people face to face because you're literally at the same place at the same time, even if it's over the internet. Because if you've got people participating on a forum thread and one person is on holidays on a beach replying you know, succinctly and one is stuck in traffic, one hasn't slept for days with a baby, like people can come at it with very different energies and perspectives. So I've taken two very strongly principled approaches and despite the strong position, I, yeah, I've 
I've come around to talk to the people leading those projects. We hugged at East Denver. We've had calls since. So I think that some things have to be said. There are better ways to say it. But overall, yeah, vindication feels good. It was definitely a wake up. I don't relish in it, but it just stuff needs to get done and the best idea needs to win. But I 100% agree with you that being respectful is really paramount. I, I definitely was a wake up call for me, this event you were talking about. And it actually, it changed my, my demeanor in my online. This was like just three months or four months into COVID as well. And I hadn't even met these people in person. So it changed my demeanor. It changed everything about how I talk to my colleagues online. So it was actually a good learning lesson for me. And it was like a great way to, to improve. Since then, I actually came up with a, I came up with a quote based on helping other people through uh, a similar sort of events. And I just needed to communicate to them at, like that you can get everything done and you can get everything from other people that you need to do your job in a nice way. And so I shortened that all down to get what you want nicely, because there's always a nice way to, to talk, to discuss, to, to make a case for something when you yourself objectively believe that you have a logical and rational kind of a way to get something done. So if you believe it, you can get what you want nicely. So basically just be nice to each other. Be kind. <laughs> I think we have a title for the episode. <laughs> what you want nicely. <laughs> I don't know. It's if perfect. It's brilliant. I don't know if I want my name next to that. It's going to sound like I'm, I'm like some conniving, selfish person. <laughs> yeah, it's a Trojan horse. And then we unveil the real you. <laughs> I, I like it. And, and, and I can take it to heart. Look, once again, like I've been in Australia for 12 plus years and I've been there for long enough that I'm able to measure myself and I'm like, okay, the Latin passion is coming through. Take a step back, breathe deeply. And yeah, it's, it's a work in progress. Now, I do have a theory though, and I'd love to know your thoughts about it because I've noticed that in the modern world, basically everything is pre-packaged, pre-defined, pre-done for people. In fact, we seem to be able to create more value by the more we simplify people's lives. And most people are like walking zombies. YouTube just keeps throwing things at you. Netflix keeps throwing things at you. Like I know people that can't even drive back to their own houses without a GPS. So I think that it's a very different mindset when you're actually trying to build products and you're trying to build an ecosystem and it's an adaptive complex system. And some people may come at it from like the panic button, thinking that what they're seeing immediately is the final ultimate decision that has been taken. They kick the table trying to stop that or prevent that. When in reality, it's all a work in progress and it can actually be approached in a much more calmed, friendly way. But I think that from the other side, it's just that lack of questioning. It's assuming that what they see has somebody must have thought it through and it is the final version because it is fine. So I think that there's a bit of tension between both sides. And then, and then the obvious reality of the messy middle where we're just trying to figure it out day by day. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on it as a builder. And I'm guessing that now that you're liaising with builders, investors, everyday community, whether you see those different perspectives and sometimes you have to recalibrate your message to make sure that it is hitting the right tunes. Yeah, a hundred percent. That's a, that's a really good point. So. 
There's another great quote I'm sure people have heard, never contribute to malice what you could contribute to ignorance. I've noticed in my own life, like I, I'm older, much older now, but when I was in my early 20s, I moved to Vancouver. I've always had a, a bit of a rough kind of anti-establishment punky streak to myself in my early days. Basically, I moved to Vancouver. I'm doing jogs and riding my bike around the city and I'm listening to punk music and stuff. And I, I had I had some run-ins, people pulling into uh, a roundabout, not a four-way stop and different traffic rules when you come to a roundabout and them not knowing the rules of the road, even despite them being uh, like a 50 year uh, man in his 50s and me knowing the rules better than them and just like getting into shouting matches and people getting out of their car saying they're going to knock you out that this is all just stuff that you want to avoid. So what you want to do is you just want to you want to learn to let it roll off your back. I, I'm going to sound like I'm just some book of quotes and proverbs and stuff like almost every Chinese proverb about water, you want to let it just roll like a bead and fly right off your back. And, and that's one thing that I've actually gotten way better at over the years. And so when it comes to, um, when it comes to software development and, and collaborative building with teams, whether it's front end UX or design, whether it's, whether it's just user feedback from the community, whether it's actual other developers, like not many people know, like when they go use like a DeFi app or something, and they're using a layer one protocol, a wallet that was built by somebody else and an app, like a DeFi app that was built by another team, probably each team, like the layer one protocol probably has hundreds of people. And then the wallet team has at least half a dozen to a dozen. And then the app itself probably has another half a dozen to a dozen. When a user goes, they have to keep in the back of their mind that uh, this is a complicated orchestration of, of people. And then amongst each team, they need to come together to support certain features and to have certain guarantees in their code and also in their relationships with each other, not just code, but DevOps and supporting, supporting certain features until a certain time and things like that. That it's complicated. It's like a whole world of, it's a whole world. It's very deep nested world of a lot of it gets done just with virtual handshakes, but, uh, but a lot of it gets done with some actual agreements in place. And a lot of it gets done literally at the code level, like a method from one code base calls a method from another code base and expects that they're going to continue to get the same thing and it hasn't been updated. And if it was updated, you should send me some nice, pretty deprecation message or something. This is, this is complicated. It's complexity on complexity. So in all of that, you do have to keep in the back of your mind. You just have to assume that, oh, maybe this team did not know about our needs. Maybe this, maybe this user isn't aware that we are rolling out that feature next week. And yeah, it's just, uh, it's exhausting even describing it. Like I, my brain just went, my brain just went bloom as I just described. I thought this interview was going to be fun. <laughs> hey, where's the fun stuff, man? Let's talk about the uh, future. We go shirtless in three, two. Oh, that's you know, it's sitting actually. Speaking of talking about fun stuff, I, I got to give a shout out to all the people entering the space with all of their enthusiasm, thinking that all of the, like all of the NFTs and the tokens and the, like the DAOs and everything just come 
out of thin air and it's super easy to use. And they, they show up and they say, what do you mean I can't create a really complicated generative NFT by, by clicking and dragging? Shout out, great ideas. It's just going to take a little bit of time. <laughs> I don't know if you've been stalking me or somebody gave you the heads up, but I was actually going to try to recruit you to make the misfits fly and breed in midair and split around. And... Right. Yeah. No, I mean, it's a... Misfits are Sims. That's the next step. <laughs> Dude, like that, but yeah, with the breeding and, and, and the mutants. And look, I, I think it's an extreme example because I, I love how we can, we, we keep stacking levels of complexity, like from my end, especially... And I was running the product and user experience guild. The one thing you keep telling people is everything you see, it's a work in progress. If something doesn't work, instead of going and shitting on it in public, just message the team. Like everyone is reachable at this stage of the ecosystem and they really do value feedback. And especially if something is broken. So it's interesting how I was looking at it from like the, the end user and you're looking at it from the communication, like amongst teams. And I can imagine there'd be so many more dynamics. So get what you want nicely, covers everything. <laughs> yeah, try to, try to have a catch-all, like the be calm and move on or whatever, the, whatever that one was. And, and by the way, you should keep quoting books because these days people don't read. You should bring on all the Buddhist philosophy because uh, a lot of people can benefit from it. Yeah, that's, it's really, it's hard. It, I, I think it's great, actually. You pick some good topics. We jumped in with a lot of the interpersonal stuff, a lot of the, a lot of the hard stuff. And the reality is, is that people see us, like <laughs> the New York Times publishes an article, everybody's getting hilariously rich and you're not or something. And it's like, a lot of people did work on these things. A lot of people built these networks. Like a lot of people actually slaved away on like, protocols like Bitcoin and Ethereum for several years, getting little to no rewards. And it, it's just something like people, when they enter the space, they need to realize that, yes, it's very fast. Yes, it's very exciting. Yes, new stuff comes out all the time. But it also like, it takes time to do these things and they don't always get done. And, and it's just at the end of the day, behind every coin, behind every NFT, there's a human. Like there's a person that worked on it or there's several people most likely, uh, unless it's a, unless it's a rug pull that it's probably just like some douche, <laughs> but Harold, good topics, man. Like I rare, rarely ever do we get into these kinds of things on podcasts. People bring you on, they say, what's your background? What are you working on now? What's hot? Give me the alpha. And then you're gone. But th these are good topics worthy of discussion. Yeah, the tagline for the podcast is a podcast about people, product, and crypto. And we often work away in that order. And I think it's important because it never ceases to amaze me how many new people join every day. And everyone is obviously keenly aware of their shortcomings or their insecurities or how much they have to learn. And by contrast, everyone that they see in the ecosystem, they automatically assume that, I don't know, that they're like perfect. You're like a godlike figure coding and sharing some uh, gangster Norwegian DJs on Twitter. It's interesting to know you may be doing really well, but there is a journey that leads to that. And there are challenges involved with the role. It's not an eternal rave of happiness. So yeah, happy to, to explore that. Second point is I love that NFTs and some of the craziness in, in the fun part of crypto, they definitely create for a weird environment. I can see how some people may find that alienating. There are some rock pools. There are some batshit crazy things happening in general. 
But overall, I think that it, it at least makes it a more fun place to be while you build and grind away. Because, I don't know, maybe because I'm a personality, but if I was doing all the work that I'm doing now and there was radio silence, no community cheering you on, no people keen to learn, no one to just be excited about what you're building, I don't think I could do it. That's why I didn't last more than nine months as a lawyer in Sydney. Because all the work that you do, and you literally do slave away in, in those documents, very few people read them, no one care, and everyone hates you when you invoice them. So I guess that as crazy as the community may be, I'm happier than not that they're there. And yeah, I think their energy in some way does feed into the whole momentum. I love the near community, actually. I have been enjoying so much the like the stuff on Twitter and even stuff that I'm not really particularly plugged into certain NFT projects just don't interest me. That's fine. That's my personal take. It doesn't mean they're not good. They're not funny in their Twitter, in their Twitter uh, profiles and, and what they tweet. And then there's stuff like, like technical analysis and price talk and stuff that I just don't care about because I'm just not, I'm just not obsessing. Like I'm not obsessing it over. I'm, I'm here. I'm not necessarily here for a good time because, because uh, I, I have to work in this ecosystem, you know, it's fun and rewarding work, but I'm here for a long time. Just so everybody knows, because it's, it's been super rewarding to be surrounded by such a funny community. So like somebody puts up something about people ask me about, about, about my technical analysis and they draw like dinosaurs and stuff. Those people come from our ecosystem and it is priceless. It's so funny. And I think that there's a lot of, a lot of people in, in our community that have the attitude that, that this is just getting started and, and there's going to be a lot more people entering the near ecosystem that's the feeling that's the vibe and they're the kind of people that are onboarding their friends and bringing in other like-minded people that they know from around the internet and this is this is the kind of thing that we want to build uh, using crypto and blockchain we want to build online communities that can create share exchange value and things that they believe should have value in the world so it's awesome. The near community has been doing stellar. It's great. It's so much fun. To me, that is a huge test for decentralization. Have you built a platform or a protocol that enables any community to sprawl and thrive without your involvement? And I don't know if you recall, but back in the day when we launched Misfits, Near was like a bit of a stable coin, more on the downward side than upwards. And there were PFP projects like exploding everywhere, more noticeably in Solana. And people often see NFTs as a sign of healthiness. It's an easy way to onboard people. It's fun. There's a lot of money in it. So we identified the mechanism for launch, having the out of 10,000 first you pay, then you reveal. There's all the momentum leading up to it. There were a lot of things that we worked uh, towards with the 10K team. And I'm extremely happy that after we did that, there, there were more projects in short succession, the near nodes and the meerkats. And I have, you know, taken a major step back from the NFT community and it's just thriving. It does not lead a leader. It does not need permission. They're out there innovating, going wild. And they're now bringing their own money from Solana and they're bringing developers and this tribal shit fights between them. And there's rug pulls. And yesterday I talked to someone that was involved in an on-rugging. It's just amazing. So I'm the same as you. Like, I'm happy that 
there are parts of the ecosystem that I'm not actively involved and they're growing nicely. And that may be in contrast with, yeah, maybe June last year, you could feel the weight of if you're not out there, like just like hustling and pushing all the time, there's not much happening in the, in, in the social sphere. So it's been a, a massive shift and it is definitely accelerating. Like I remember that last week of December and I remember because I think there was something ironic about the day that the New York Nation <laughs> went on holiday, it just started exploding and especially on Aurora and there was a big project at the time called Neck, which yeah, no comments. But yeah, there were so many new people arriving that it was very encouraging. Now, there was something that I want to say before I forget. For all the new people arriving, and I love that anyone that has been in crypto for six months consider themselves to be around for a long time, which technically they are. Six months? Those are the OGs. Those are the OGs. I think it is good for them to know that we're not really building for an NFT platform. We're not really building for a DeFi marketplace. Most people in crypto have like a North Star around decentralization, like global. We're talking like government institutions. We're talking about like big tech. There really is a much stronger mission that, hey, if you get rich in the process or if you make friends or whatever the case may be, all that is a bonus. As you say, the people that have that mission have been there from day one. They've remained anonymous out of necessity and they're going to keep hustling away until the code is there and set in stone. I think the reason I wanted to mention that is because I really want to go back to your youth, your anarchist youth. I'd love to learn more about like where you grew up and potentially how that shaped up some of those anti-establishment views. I'm happy to share some of my story. As you can imagine, growing up in Venezuela was a bit wild, fun, but wild. And I also share some anti-establishment views. So share away if you're happy to. Sure. Yeah. People may have heard about other stuff from my past. There's an article that, that the near people of near or something, uh, wrote about me. So you, if you want the details, you can go to that, but, uh, always been interested in computers, technology, specifically creating when there's something out there that can be done with a computer. I want to almost prove to myself that I can do it too. So that's, I wouldn't necessarily call myself a competitive person. I think I'm just more of a, I'm like, I'm like a hacker example person that really wants to understand how things work by actually implementing them myself. So that's one side of my personality. I have been like this my entire life and there's nothing stopping me. So I haven't slowed down. I haven't stopped looking at stuff like I, I may have fallen in and out of I've had so many jobs in my life. I may have fallen in and out of technology as a profession even, but I've always been back on the computer in the evenings and weekends and building things. So that's just a part of my life. Builder, creator, inventor, uh, like idea tester person. I do things from the bottom up. I invent, I build and I write code and I try things out. I don't do it from the top down. So I'm not really, I was in academia for quite some time, but I'm not really an academic from the top down hypothesis kind of perspective. So that's interesting. And then you asked about the anti-establishment stuff. This is hilarious because I don't think I've ever covered this. But so when I was a kid, it all seemed too slow for me and it all seemed too stupid. I remember opening like a bank. I'll talk about real anti-establishment. 
let's get the libertarians in here and let me talk about setting up my first bank account. So anyways, I set up a bank account when I was a kid and my parents had to go in and I had to sit in front of this like ugly old lady and she brought out literally, it was like 40 sheets of paper and like all this stuff. And like my dad slapped down a hundred dollar Canadian bill and was like, this is your first deposit and things like that. And it was like a big production. And me, I was a kid. I was over on the computer, like doing stuff. And I was just like, I, I literally saw that, like I saw the like, the sort of the, what they would call the wet software world or the wet contracts world, the wet signature world, whatever you want to call it. And I just thought, oh, it's so gross. It's so nasty. And all these people involved, I hated it. And, and that, that is burned into my brain. And, and meanwhile, I'm over on the computer. I'm making levels for, for games and I'm designing the levels and I'm doing all sorts of crazy crap. And, and I just thought, wow, these things are worlds apart. And sure enough, look at where we are. Look at the industry we're in. It's just crazy. So that's one piece. The other piece is that I was uh, involved in some of these. I don't want to I don't want to boast or anything, but I was like I was, I was involved in some, I guess, like special classes or whatever. And these are ones where we would go a little bit beyond the normal sort of middle and high school curriculum, we would go deeper. We would go into politics and human nature and economics and motivations for various sort of things that were happening. And that's where I met a lot of my good high school friends, some of who I still uh, talk relatively as much as you talk with high school friends today. I still am connected with them. I actually saw a whole bunch of them last winter, which was really great. So I fell in with this group and we were into basically poking at the system and basically prodding it and asking ourselves, is this what, is this how we want to live? Is this the way we want to treat each other? Is this how we want things to be organized and, and how we want, essentially, how do we want uh, value and sort of our time and effort as, as we put as inputs to be rewarded and recognized as a society. So we delved into all sorts of topics. We did case studies, we did all this stuff. And it was really quite a fascinating experience being in those classes from grade eight through 12. So basically five years total and mostly with the same sort of small group of friends within those classes. So that was very fun. Shout out to the people, Mr. Brown and not the Mr. Brown that you know, but an actual Mr. Brown. <laughs> Harry, we better Harry. send the real Mr. Brown, a Mr. Brown. Maybe I should. Yeah. Harry Brown, shout out to Harry Brown. Brilliant guy. Sandra Webster Worthy. She created the whole program. Awesome stuff. Amazing teachers I had. I can't thank them enough. I had some really good uh, people. And so the small group of friends that I was with, the, what took it over the edge was that I grew up in Victoria, BC. It's a small it's the capital of British Columbia in Canada on the west coast of Canada. It's actually on an island, Vancouver Island, which is off the coast of Vancouver, not connected. So you got to take ferry boats everywhere. There's no bridge. So very awesome place to grow up. Pretty, pretty free, pretty unstructured. Lots of coastline, of course, because you're on an island and great sort of nature and stuff. So what did my little group of friends do in the latter years of high school? Obviously, we went to punk concerts and we hung out with essentially like local communist punk bands and stuff. And man, was it crazy. And like in and around the local bands, we're listening to Rancid and Rage Against the Machine and all the like 
the top kind of punk and anti-establishment kind of alternative and metal and whatever that you could get your hands on. And um, we spent, we literally spent our, our free time, me and some of my closest friends back then, we spent our free time like reading about like Plato and, and Nietzsche and stuff. Like we were- Marxism. Yeah, we were skateboarding. <laughs> So one lunch hour, we were skateboarding and the other lunch hour, we're reading Nietzsche. And then the other lunch hour, we're, we're playing chess. Like we were totally freaks. Like we were just doing what, and we were also, a lot of us were in the drama in improv club as well. I, I don't know. You probably, maybe you might ask a question about this, but I'll just answer it right now. Yes. That's where I get my, my ability to speak in front of people to talk to people. I got over all of those public speaking fears and stuff by being involved in uh, drama things through high school. So that's it. That's the history, the anti-establishment. You have a picture now from me as a child, like hating bureaucracy to going to these advanced classes and really digging into it and seeing the flaws in the system and reading about case studies and philosophers discussing it through time to me as a skateboarding punk concert attending little shit disturber. <laughs> That was amazing. Have you shared Thanks, like buddy. all that story before or is this a primer? Not really, but like, it's all good. Like it's, yeah, I'll tell it's people awesome. if, they, if they ask. I don't really care. It is what it is. It's, oh, by the way, if you want some fun stuff, I was the kid in grade six that put Wolfenstein on all the computers. And the teacher comes in after grabbing like a coffee from the teacher's lounge. And this is elementary school. And he comes in and all of a sudden, like, Literally two thirds of the class are just like blowing up Nazis and there's blood and guts flying all over the screens. And he is freaking out trying to shut it down, but he couldn't snuff it out because every kid had a private drive and then there was a shared network drive. So I taught everyone to take it from the shared network drive once I had put it in uh, with a floppy disk. Yes, a floppy disk. I'm not old. I'm really, I'm actually old. But I taught everybody to move it to their private drive and then how to move it back every time the teacher deleted it. And then eventually they had to actually, they had to announce to the kids, yes, we told you these were your private drives, but we're actually going to access them all and snuff out this game. And that's a very Canadian thing to do. Well, what? Yeah, it's a very Canadian thing to do. What just happened with these truckers out in Ottawa? <laughs> We're going to go into your private bank accounts and we're going to freeze those assets. Yeah. Hey, grade six, 12 years old. This is the first experience, right? This is how you see your relationship between yourself and your friends and your colleagues and institutions, right? You know what I really like that at the time, it must have felt anti-establishment to be in like separate special classes where you dig deep because the establishment as kids is just everyone going herd from class to class and you fall behind and no one cares and you don't know what you're learning, what you're learning. Like it's basically daycare for, for a lot of kids. So at the time being on the special class that had to think would have been anti-establishment, but as an adult, ironically, it's those kids that become the establishment. Like in some ways, when you hear about it, you were almost destined to succeed, or I guess it, it made it impossible for you to fail. And as you were talking, I was thinking like Jeff Bezos was actually included in a study. There's a book about him as a child and as a teenager through a gifted program in Texas. So it's, yes, they may have been weird at the time, but it is that weirdness that actually flips it as an adult. And 
yeah, I don't know if you have any, any, any feelings or objections to be called the establishment now, but I think that in your own ways and fears, you can definitely see how it is the people that nurture that curiosity and that go deep, that rise to the top. There's no shortcut for it. And if there's people listening to this, wanting to really be in those higher echelons, Gotta go read Niche and Plateau. It is funny that you mentioned that. And I have an opinion about that that touches on our industry. So if you look at our industry and you look at how it's being regulated and how it's going so far, I, I'm reminded of the how it started, how it's going. So let's talk about how it's going. It's, it's being regulated on a case-by-case -case basis and there's fines coming down and there's very complicated 400-page documents that are getting released on this is, this is what you need to watch out for if you're considering doing XYZ crypto or basically just not crypto, but just if you're interested in exchanging value over the internet, you are going to need to you're going to need to cover so much of this complicated noise. And it has just been noise. It's been case study noise. It's been these huge, complicated releases noise. And when you think about that, we are actually the, we're the people that are shaping this new space. And you can see already that the existing kind of established rules and people who are even designed or basically were trained to regulate spaces such as this cannot actually keep up with the sort of the bleeding edge and that's a blessing and a curse we have to be very careful how we walk these lines but we're coming up with all sorts of fun curious ideas things that we want to experiment with and we're putting them out in the world as these pieces of code and they are gaining traction they're getting value because people see it they understand a concept and an idea, they believe in it, and they, it, they almost like it's not the developer or, or the, the project that imbues the value, it's the community and the people that rally around it and actually uh, support it and breathe life into it. Now, this has never been possible because of basically communication costs, pre-internet, definitely not possible, borders, et cetera, geopolitical kind of things. And then it's never been possible because transaction costs have always been too high. So it's always too high to guarantee agreements between people. And even you could argue transaction costs are too high with Bitcoin and they got recently too high with Ethereum. So now we're in this new world where we'll talk about our scope of the world. We're in, we're on near protocol and we can experiment at the speed of software. We can communicate theoretically at the speed of light almost with how we want to share and exchange value. And it's very cheap to experiment. So it's very cheap to actually put something on mainnet and to play for keeps. And so I think we're like, we're entering into an era where, like you said, people like me that grew up different, that grew up in, uh, in learning about the past, but also proposing new ideas for things and, and being creative kind of builder, throw it at the wall and see if it sticks people. We're entering a whole new world where that stuff can actually be done on mainnet for keeps and it can actually gain a lot of traction. And then what do you do? Like it's open, the Pandora's box. So like, what do you do after that? I don't know. And I don't know what, the, I'm not like, I don't have any strong opinions on what the future of this space is going to look like, but I do think that we're not going to unwind because we just, 
you simply can't. Like people got a taste of it. They love it. They're having fun with it and they're really enjoying themselves. Dude, you have hit the nail in the head. We've got the current establishment being replaced by a new establishment. And I think that is fascinating because I studied law, you know, even back in my day, and I'm not that old, I guess I may be a little bit younger than you. Law was the most prestigious thing that you could study. In fact, I'll tell you a story. When I got into law in Australia, I had just arrived in Australia. I moved there when I was 18. I remember going to the opening ceremony, like the first day, and the Dean of Law gets on the stage, short man, but big ego. You could just see his presence. You know what the first thing he says is? You are the top 1% of the state and the top 2% of the country, like academically. Like the students there received general tests, standardized tests. If you were smart, that's where they pushed you or that's where you aimed to be. And throughout my degree, I met so many unhappy people that only, they were only doing law because they got in. It was just not their passion and not their calling. And I remember I, towards the end of my degree, I was participating in some digital transformation, like study groups for the university. They paid some consultants a bunch of money to get students involved and claim there was some consultation. And I had the chance to meet several deans from other faculties and participate in some sessions. I asked them why they didn't have a computer science law degree. They offer law, double degree with everything. I did arts law, most people do commerce law, engineering law, high demand, biomed law, high demand. And the dude from the computer science faculty told me that they, were, they had been trying for years, but the law faculty didn't see the value in it. Now, they only just recently created that, I think it's about two or three years old. But since then I realized it. It's not that the law faculty didn't see the value in it. It's that their perception of value was actually inverse. The law faculty saw themselves as being the most valuable degree of any combination that they went with arts, by leaps and bounds, with commerce. If you're a good student and you graduate commerce law, you do law. If you're a shit one, you go do commerce. Same with engineering law. If you do well, you go do patents and stuff. Like they, they had that supremacy. And they must have realized, consciously or unconsciously, that if you do computer science law, the good students will go to computer science. And out of the gate, the salaries are double, triple. So I think that it is fascinating that for the first time in history, we have that establishment being challenged. And you said something that, I don't think you said it literally, but I may just butcher it and make it even the tagline for the episode. It's like governance experiments at the speed of software. Like that given is frightening, like laws are meant to change slowly for a reason. You don't want to like burn everything up. But in terms of what you can experiment with and improve, it's unheard of. And I think that's what they're shitting themselves about. And I love that if we make it fun so that people can be coding and connected to the community and building in one way or another 24 seven, the establishment has no chance because they work a nine to five and they hate their job. <laughs> So it's, uh, it's interesting to see which way this is going. And by the way, crypto is the last mile threatening the actual politicians and lawyers. Because if you look at anything else, big tech already fucking wiped the floor with everyone else. You've got Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, Mark Zuckerberg, people that were literally no one 20 years ago are now the world's richest, the most influential, etc. I don't know, even the likes of Peter Thiel. He's in the background, but... 
they've got an enormous amount of power. So I think that yeah, it look is... at the battle that they're going through right now, big tech, because right now I would argue that the spotlight is firmly on them and the politicians know that Facebook, some sort of Facebook country of 2.x billion people is a threat. And remember all of the overlapping with crypto. Remember all the conversations about Facebook and Libra because they knew if they added that Facebook dollar that it would immediately overnight have hundreds of millions of users actively using it as a medium of exchange. And that would be a huge threat. A threat to whom? A to the politicians that have been in power for 50 years? Yes. Uh, yeah. That have amassed $250 million and a 200K salary doing insider trading? Like the crooks are aware that the party is over. Yes, that's right. Yeah. And, so and now the challenge is big tech going to claim the pot. Technology is going to win. And now the question, is it going to be centralized the Zuckerberg and Bezos way? Or is it going to be decentralized in the form of networks? And by the way, we shouldn't deny, and I think we should even embrace the notion of a Facebook nation. Like Balaji just published his book, The Network State. It's the same, but through blockchains. So I think that for every criticism that they come up with against big tech, crypto is actually a solution, which is why it's been so fascinating to see their hearings in Congress and shit, because they don't know what they're talking about and they have completely ill-informed like talking points. Yeah, I'm happy to have you leading this revolution, sir. I don't know if I want to be named as the person leading the revolution, <laughs> but I actually- No, no, I, you're in I, Canada. I got to give a shout out to something that the really, and by the way, you framed it really, really nicely, is it's big tech in the spotlight right now, challenging things like US dollar hegemony with sort of a, a centralized Facebook currency. Let's say that that is the discussion that is freaking out the politicians today. But that we know that currency would just be basically, uh, even if they said it was a crypto, it would be a wolf in sheep's clothing, right? Like it would just be controlled by Facebook and a small number of people, not really truly crypto as we see it in our industry. It's sort of like, how do we want this to end up? We do know that we're going we're gonna to transition power, value, things like that. We know that these structures like governance are going to transition Will it be centralized or will it be decentralized? Per personally, I don't want to burst anybody's bubble. I do think it's going to be some sort of a hybrid approach and it's definitely going to be like a slow unwinding. Insert Greta Thunberg meme. How dare you? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> no, actually, this, I think this is a perfect segue and I do respect your time. As a proponent of decentralized products, maybe we can like delve headfirst into the wonderful world of DeFi. For anyone that has been following me for more than five minutes, know that I am passionate about it. Matt conveniently is also having a lot of exposure recently through proximity. So I think we can talk all things, products, degen strategies, anything that comes to mind, I'm game. What do you think, sir? Let's do it. Yeah. And I can run over a little bit. So we're all good. So do we want to just do a, a quick lay of the land? Do you want to buzz through? Do we want to just name drop all the cool shit that we've yeah. seen lately? So just really briefly, before we dive into DeFi, I know that I'm meant to be interviewing you, but I'll, I'll show you because I think this is relevant and you'll find it interesting. Let's go. While I was growing up, we went from whatever, petrol country, there's money, we'd go to Disney World as children. And then there was a, you know, revolution in 1999 
and shit starts going downhill. We've got price controls for goods. Who could have predicted shortages of everything? We've got everything, currency controls. Like I was actually a prolific black market, like exchange person. I'd work in Australia, selling the black market, pay for me university through like the official channels. Like it, I, I guess I had a real world high stakes experience of how trying to micromanage an economy just completely fucks it up. And now in a counterintuitive way, paradoxically, with the minute the government gave up, they literally just gave up. They stopped doing anything about the economy. The economy is bouncing back. It's all dollarized. There's new businesses opening. There's investments. I know people now that left when I left are buying property back home. Like, so I guess that from that experience that obviously hits very close to home, no pun intended, I love that with DeFi, you have contained ecosystems with basically unlimited possibilities, but also you can more easily identify and understand all the variables at play. And that's what really gets me going because I think that we're at the stage where we can see the players, we can see the variables, and it's creating hypotheses. And it's part of the free markets is free access to information so that people can make decisions. So I think that's the space where I get really passionate about communicating like, well, how does it work and what can you do with it? With that introduction, yeah, if you want to do a quick, what do you call it, a lay of the land? Yeah, like a sort of like we just name drop everything that we think is cool. I'll, I'll go first. You fill in anything that I miss. So let's talk about yeah. DeFi specific. So I joined Proximity Labs. We do a lot of research and development for specifically focusing on the near native virtual machine. So that's like Rust-based contracts, uh, a lot of the sort of uh, standards around fungible tokens, DeFi and things like that going on near. And so we helped a lot of teams understanding things like we helped the ref finance team. We helped the borough team shout out just launched on mainnet. So shout out to that team. We help these teams understand near the near SDK. We have Eugene the Dream on the team who basically created the near native VM with the help of a lot of other near brains and, and basically created the Rust SDK. So we got a lot of experience. We got a lot of kind of horsepower and we, that's what we do. We help teams. We do this R and D. So that's proximity labs. We also help out with like liquidity and stuff. Most of the action to date has been happening on Aurora. So we've been helping teams basically bootstrap a lot of their, their DeFi, their money markets and all sorts of things. So a shout out to the Bastion team, the Origami team, just shipping like crazy, doing really well. And shout out to all the DEXs and, and swaps and stuff that have been happening prior to that and all the farms. Trisolaris, WannaSwap, Rose. I think I probably missed some. But I just wanted to say like a few names. So maybe the listeners, if you put some show notes, the listeners can grab those later. But yeah, we're very excited to see. Oh, and shout out to the Aurora team and the Rainbow Bridge, because without them, none of this would be possible. I personally am excited to actually, I've used the Rainbow Bridge. It's 10 minutes to get from ETH to NIR. And that's that's majority like a, like an ETH thing. It's It's a great, Ethereum is amazing. I came from that community. I love all the people in there. But it's it's 2015 Genesis technology and it's it needs an upgrade and they're working on 2.0 in the merge. So excited to see what happens there. But when you bridge assets from ETH to NIR or ETH directly to Aurora, it is a beautiful experience with the Rainbow Bridge. And especially between NIR and Aurora, because we're really talking about the same blockchain, but two different virtual machines. Very cool. So basically, because NIR the underlying blockchain has two block finality and blocks are basically like 1.2 seconds. 
you can basically cross the bridge in two and a half seconds. And I've, I've literally been like blown away. Like my eyes popped when I saw that I barely even opened the next tab to go see if I could actually use the funds and boom, they were there. They were in my wallet. It's a great experience. So I, ADB, you want to talk about your DeFi experience on Nier and just shout out some of the favorite projects? I'll start with Proximity Labs. We can edit the choppy pieces out afterwards. I am a major fan of Proximity and that was one of the few things that gives you conviction back in the day. And I have said for a long time and I'll keep saying it into perpetuity, especially as um, the ecosystem keeps growing and it becomes more obvious that Nier was the way to go. It takes a very special kind of person to stick around with Nier all throughout last year. That would have been 2021, depending when you're listening to this episode, because every single blockchain was pumping. And Nier was in the high 60s, 70s in CoinGecko. Anyone that you talked about said, no, Solana won or whatever, Avax won. It was, people were focusing on the wrong things. They were focusing on maybe they won the media attention cycle. Maybe they won in the coin market cap rankings. But what really gave me conviction was that Nier was playing in a different race. And it was a race around usability. Can we build a blockchain that is great for uh, developer tooling and that will enable them to create really good user experiences, like for the end users? And it takes a lot of work to put this philosophy into practice. And Proximity is one of the groups that spins out. And they've got, correct me if I'm wrong, I maybe totally shit here, Matt, but they've got a very simple core mission. You identify the challenge of as a Rust native layer one, you have a shit ton more things to build because you're starting from scratch. And given the competitive landscape for developers and projects, it was much harder to attract people to build that. So I like that Proximity has a very clear vision and they've been building and contributing all those basic components. Ref was the first AMM. Obviously, everyone in the crypto space knows that a layer one needs to have a solid, reputable AMM. If I recall correctly, the first version was actually coded by Ilya and handed over to the community. And now borrow something similar. They've got support from proximity just to ensure that they're success. And I like that you guys have been flexible and dynamic enough that as the ecosystem evolves, you support where needed. So Aurora naturally develops much faster because you can leverage existing EVM code. So you maybe come in with liquidity. So I'm a big fan of how the ecosystem is really supporting itself in ways that may not be obvious to people, but all the things happening behind closed doors give me a lot of confidence that we're going to keep growing. And I think we're starting to hit that flywheel. You can definitely see how dev tooling, dev activity, more applications, more users, price goes up, media attention spin savagely. So that makes me really excited. My experience with DeFi personally, and this links with the Rainbow Bridge really well, I am a savage. I'm not even going to try to hide it. I started my near journey by taking a loan against my BTC because I don't know what people think of me, but I'm actually poor. And that near that I've been holding since January last year, I started, it's been staked throughout and I switched to Metapool the day that Metapool went live. So I had so much contained energy to be able to deploy my ST near. Dude, at some point I was like 10% of all, all oil finance and NUSDO. I broke the peg. I, I contacted the team directly. I was like, Hey, how can we fix this? So I'm pretty active across Bastion, Origami, and now Borrow. My play 
is simple, but I think it's a powerful one, especially with an early stage ecosystem. So I put down as senior as collateral, it earns 10% on near, and I borrow a USD stablecoin. The interest rates have been very low, like 3% is the top that I've paid. So very simple maths. If you've got an asset earning you 10% per year, give or take, and you take out debt that you're paying 3% interest on, over time, it's an extremely healthy loan to the point where it basically pays itself. That is a valid consideration, assuming that you take out USD and whatever you buy a car or you get yourself a holiday, you will be able to meet your debt obligations. However, yeah, you'll be able to service your debt. That was exactly what I was trying to say. However, the degen loop would be take out USD. USD is beautiful because it stays the same and it is depreciating a lot <laughs> recently. So you accrue a debt in a stable asset such as USD, and then you buy a strong asset such as Bitcoin or Nier. I've basically been siphoning into both. With Nier, stake it again, and the cycle repeats. More recently, I did start to take out loans to start diversifying into different liquidity pools and just start piling some products that I'm really bullish and I think they're very undervalued right now. But yeah, I don't know if you have any comments, if you've been doing something similar, if you have any insights for me, I'm always looking to optimize. I'm not going to be as savage as you, mainly because of my role as a ex near personality and also uh, as a Proximity Labs member. I don't want to discuss specifics because I also don't want to be favoring any protocols and stuff. So I hope the listeners understand that uh, somewhat diplomatic stance. But I will tell you that I have been, I, like I am in the chats with the Bastion team, Origami team. I follow along. I'm not by any means the, the number one go-to person that they ask for feedback or anything like that. But I participate in those discussions and I'm very impressed by these teams and by their openness for feedback and how quickly they're iterating on Aurora right now. I want to touch on something you said, the near native stuff. This is why proximity was given a mandate to bootstrap the near native VM work because Rust is different than Solidity. It's a bit of a harder language with a steeper learning curve. We have a bespoke near SDK. So even if you're, if you, even if you're a Rust god coming from Solana, we are sharded. We are non-blocking async. Oh, and <laughs> by the way, we, we don't turn off. Oh, that was a rough one. <laughs> Just, I had to get that in. But uh, yeah, we're... We're well, the two people that know what that means. Kudos <laughs> to you. I I'm going to write it down and go do some research. I'll ask you after the show. Funny, funny though. No, I actually wrote that on Reddit. I said, they said, why choose, why choose like Mir or some other blockchain over Solana? And I just wrote, do you want your app to be turned off? And then they wrote, I don't understand who turns off the apps. And I said, I said, just think creatively. Sorry to get the I get it. Now. I get it. Sorry, get it. sorry, sorry, soul people. But anyways, so non-blocking async, it's Rust. We have our own bespoke SDK. It's very challenging to get development teams to come in and actually say, hey, I want to learn all this new shit and I want to actually commit the, the next five years of my life to building in this ecosystem. There's also a trust factor, right? Is the VM secure? How much value is it securing? Is the underlying blockchain, like things around the blockchain and consensus, and then the actual VM and the execution and potential smart contract exploits are two different things. People don't realize this. 
People think, and then let's not even talk to the plebs that think that like when a centralized exchange gets hacked, that Bitcoin got hacked. That's just bananas. But there is this level of trust and education that we need to establish in order for people to come and to really throw a lot of development efforts behind us. Yes, we've been working extremely hard at bootstrapping this ecosystem and it's a challenge, but it's exciting to see it taking shape now. And I, I just want to, I can't underscore enough what you said. The flywheel is spinning. I'm in a lot of these chats with a lot of these teams and I can't, so I, I'm in a lot of them and I feel very privileged to know what's coming. Um, alpha, however, alpha, alpha. <laughs> not going not to do it, but afterwards to tell it. Look, it's meta, it's called meta alpha. So I'm going to, I'm going to describe it here really clearly. I'm in a lot of chats with a lot of these teams. And then literally yesterday morning, I get a message from a really well-known basically GP of a mega near ecosystem fund, like almost pure near investments. And he sends me his top 10. These are my top 10 projects I'm excited about launching soon. I don't even know half of them. And, but I work at proximity and I'm in all the privileged chats. Like what's happening? That just means if you're looking at that meta alpha, that there is so much development and so many projects that are now flipping to near and Aurora that it's, I can't keep up. I, you'd have to be some sort of God person. Like you don't wait, cue the brain meme, cue the brain meme with lasers shooting out. Yeah. AVB, your tweets are great. You're doing a good job keeping up. I see the, the tweets about strategies, do this, go here, look at this rate, look at that rate, check this out. It's awesome. And I see like the lists of all the projects and stuff. That's really helpful, I think, for a lot of people in the ecosystem. Look, I always go back to my early startup days and there's a phrase that got burned into my brain because it's so useful in so many contexts. And some, if someone listens to the podcast regularly, they may be able to actually have a drinking game every time that I mention it because it's, it's almost always there. It's all about de-risking the venture. So if you're a new blockchain, there's two things that you have to do. The first one is convince people that the blockchain is a good one and it works, but that is an easy bit. Most modern blockchains work. I don't want to name names, but there's obviously smart people working on them and they're not a piece of shit if you hear from them this day and age. The second challenge is, is it going to be a risky career move for me to abandon whatever it is that I'm doing now? And some developers can be making mad money at traditional big tech. The demand for developers is very high across the board. Is it going to be a good career move for me? And not only financially, assuming the project fails, you still got paid as an employee and you can fetch good money, but even just reputationally, do you want to be the guy working on the X when the Y blows it out of the water? And then there's a very interesting human condition there. So I think that this applies to everything from developers. Dude, we've been seeing it for months with product managers and designers. How can we bring them from web two to web three? De-risking the venture starts with making web three looks like a legitimate industry, controlling the narrative. And that's why increasingly we have more podcasts, we have more blogs, we have our YouTube channels, because sometimes what the mainstream media portrays, it's actually quite bad. And once again, these web two people, which are 
brilliant talent which we need to build better products. They just don't want to be affiliated with it. So I think that is one of the huge roles that proximity is filling up because I think that just having the foundation, it's just not possible or feasible to do all the work. But when you have a separate entity with a clear mandate, it's much easier. And I'm a big fan as well, groups like the Human Guild. They are similar, separate. They have an insane pipeline of games and they've been able to grow and nurture that culture. First, can you build your game in near? Yes, for sure. Probably one of the best places to do it right now. Second, we'll de-risk it for you. On their Discord, they have a thriving community of like-minded people. They're sharing tips, they're learning together. Every game that they launch, the community support each other. That is the sort of dynamics that you want to look for. And I think that, yeah, we're definitely getting there. Yeah, big shout out to to the work that Human Guild's doing in gaming. I'm always blown away. I, I don't know any of the titles. I didn't know half the DeFi titles that were sent to me the other day, and I don't know any of those gaming titles. I don't really have time to play a lot of games these days, but but I love what they're doing. And I big shout out to the community that they've been building. It's all really about having these like-minded people um, around and then having feedback loops. And then eventually we're going to, we're going to out of a community like Human Guild, we're going to see it just an absolute rocket ship take off and have mass market appeal. I did want to also say you mentioned something really brilliant about people banding together and helping educate and bring in Web2 people and the like. I made a jab at Solana, but really we all should be working together because there is, there's what happens in like the mainstream media. It's almost like the disinformation. And we have to basically mention, because we have a lot of Ukrainian friends and colleagues and stuff, the terrible kind of tragedy that's going on over there. And especially the misinformation campaign going on inside of Russia with respect to what's happening in the Ukraine. Our industry is not unlike what's happening. We have mainstream media. They simply, I guess, for ignorance purposes, or they just don't understand, or maybe they are seeing a threat to their powers as well. And they maliciously are trying to almost misinform Web2 developers and the rest of the public saying, no, it's terrible for the environment. It's all a scam. It's absolutely, it's absolutely stupid. You, you, don't, need, you don't need a way to, to fairly, transparently, and literally non-rug pulley uh, way to share and exchange and create value on the internet. You do not need that. There's a lot of people who are saying that and spouting that narrative. And then you have what what we do and you have our narratives. And it's it's upon us to basically expand our sphere of how we talk about our own industry and the people that we include and how inclusive we are in our narratives, in our discussion, in our jargon, in our education. Because if we actually all don't work together, and I'm talking Bitcoin with Ethereum and Ethereum with with Nier and Nier with Solana and Solana with Avalanche, if we all don't get together and actually educate this space to what it is that we're trying to, to build and the future that we're trying to create, we're all going to actually suffer. We're going to have a debt. We're going to have a debt of basically dealing with a mass audience that thinks that we're all just useless tech or vaporware. So I, uh, 
I think I said it back in 2017 a little differently. I said, I said, if we don't, if we don't work on educating the public and onboarding people, and this was a very simplistic narrative at the time because it was just very early in 2017. And I said, if we don't onboard everybody and we don't educate people as an industry as a whole, we will be relegated to the corner of the internet like a technology uh, such as torrents and stuff, which went from basically 30% of all internet traffic down to single digits or less when mainstream streaming platforms came out that were easier to use, easier to understand, and just a, a better user experience. So again, it's upon our industry to create education, narratives, and better user experience as a whole and to improve things in general. Otherwise, we'll all feel the weight of the counter narrative. Look, challenges the industry has is that by definition, the core of the builders are technical and we don't want to distract them from building. In fact, some people that started building are now talking too much shit on Twitter and then should go back to building. Or they're, or they're <laughs> quitting DeFi. Just or quitting altogether. Yikes. Damn, that's two out of two. I got that one. Deep cut. So now, yeah. <laughs> so with you specifically, I always saw my role like a big opportunity, a big need as, okay, we've got giga brains from the East. Let them keep coding. I buy their vision. I believe in them. We need more people to convey that. And we've got this podcast, it's a YouTube channel. We've got a marketing DAO. There really is a lot of need to amplify the message. Now, to your point, I think it is fundamental that you own your distribution channels. You need to start your own podcast. You were recently on the Ready Layer One podcast. Shout out to them. Look, I'm not going to lie. I was a little bit butthurt that you went there first. <laughs> I remember. But, but I, I, I love it because I haven't had the chance to listen to them yet. But just by looking at the quality of the speakers that they're having on, I know that it is a really good addition to the ecosystem, especially I believe they're approaching it from a more technical angle so people can actually learn. This one's a bit more, you have fun and there's a few insights here and there, but I think that's fundamental. And I recall saying 2017, 2018, I started listening to uh, Laura Shin. Oh yeah. I've shout out to Laura. I actually, I've met her several times. Uh, she's lovely. She's an awesome person. Shout out to Laura. She's amazing. I love that. She approached it with an open door and she interviewed a wide range of people with different points of views, but also with, you know, that journalistic rigor of asking really good questions. And now she's got a book. And I think that it's been fascinating to see how she's really probably shaped a generation and informed a lot of minds, probably inspired others who know, maybe I have unconsciously been inspired by her as well a little bit. So I think that we're just going to keep pushing. Oh, the other thing that I let's name a couple others. So. There's the Defiant, amazing work done there. Robin, the guy who does those videos. I know Robin, I met him. Like we actually, before Nier, I worked at Harmony Protocol and he was the video guy for Harmony. And then, you know, I left to join Nier two years ago and he joined the Defiant. Shout out to Wrecked, always has really good breakdowns of people getting wrecked. And it's it's a great publication. And what are some of the, the lesser known ones that are really fun? Shout out to the staples from back in the day, Coindesk, Cointelegraph, the usual stuff. But do you have any other, what I would refer to as the secondary pubs, like the ones a little bit nascent? With podcasts, I usually go like a bit meta level. So I listen to a little like Tim Ferriss, The Knowledge Project, a bit okay. more broad, like indie hackers. I really enjoy getting those lessons from like startups in general. And I think 
that is a thesis that I've had since 2018 when I was really struggling to understand ICOs. And my thesis at the time was like, look, your crypto startup, it's not really different than a normal technology cycle and development cycle just because it's got crypto in it. At the time, the big dumpster fire of <laughs> that ICOs became, it was because people focused only on selling your token. No one ever thought about the product or the user or, or, or nothing. So I guess that I, I love learning just like broadly about different industries and backgrounds and then thinking laterally. I get most of my crypto content, like old schools, medium articles and we share that in common because I actually listen to, uh, I listen to a lot of Jason Calacanis, This Week in Tech, This Week in Startup, sorry. And then I do actually listen to This Week in Tech, which is very, it's about as high, it's about as high level mainstream technology news that you can get. And the reason why I listen to that is because since I've been listening to it, you notice that it starts to become like every maybe like 20 episodes when this is like weekly episodes is like, crypto, Bitcoin, blockchain. And then it's now almost discussed every show or every other show. It's brought up something. That's when you know. Yeah. What these guys do is they just, they basically just read the tech headlines and they, they, they're, there's industry tech pundits, like very high level, like the kind of like morning show, American Joe shows that you would see. They're great people and they have really good opinions and they're very, their morals and their ethics are in the right place. They, they come right out and say it when Amazon's kind of doing bad stuff or when Elon's uh, making a mess of Twitter, they just come out and say it. It's great, but it's also interesting to see how crypto and blockchain has been so pervasive to get into their narrative. And that's something that I was waiting for a long time while just generally enjoying my Sunday tech show podcast. I'm just a technology guy. I love this kind of stuff. So I like to see what's happening in the wider industry. That is such a good observation and something I was thinking about a lot when Bitcoin was in the 33,000 range and there were some doomsday Twitter day traders saying we were going down to 18,000, maybe zero, maybe it was going to go negative. <laughs> and I was just thinking like, how is it possible that some people are so bearish when Everywhere you see on the news, not only are you getting crypto mentioned more and more, but they're like more positive. Like even in the most extreme cases, you've got a war raging and both sides are embracing crypto. It's like, shit, shit, you can't lose with this one. You've got, you know, big tech company embracing crypto. You've got all these projects shipping. So I guess uh, like for me, I, I didn't sell back then and I, I've just kept working heads down. Yeah, I didn't sell. I didn't sell either, even though some people were saying to me, dude, you should move some crypto into stable coins. And I was just like, what? <laughs> Maybe. To be fair though, in a moment of panic, I put a tiny bit on stables only to farm on rows because I really like rows and I was okay. I'm going to hedge my bets here. If shit goes to zero, I can afford the rest of my trip because I'm, I'm currently on the road. And if things go well, I, I still accumulate rose on the way. Matt, I am very conscious of time and I, and we've been going for an hour and a half. So you just hit the one and a half hour mark. Woo! Yes. Do we have anything else that we want to plug any, anything that we should cover before we start wrapping up? I just want to say it's been great talking to you more about people and the world and the experience while still hoping to provide our audience with something about 
how to frame and think about crypto and about where it's going, specifically the ecosystem that we're in near and just how exciting it is right now that there is a ton of stuff being built. I also just want to, the last thing I want to, to be said is probably get what you want nicely. A brilliant way to wrap it up. Matt, you're an absolute legend. We need to have you on again very soon. And if you want to share some of that alpha when I turn off the camera, <laughs> please go ahead. Cheers, man. Thank you so much for your time.